never, ever marks the spot. I am altering the deep. Pray I don't alter it any further. Most of the intelligence community doesn't believe he exists. The ones that do call him the Winter Soldier. I'm Batman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Top 5 Report, the podcast that knows you should always have a Ghostbuster on hand when building a baseball diamond. My name is Drew. I'll be your host for the evening. Along with me, as always, is my brother Peter. Here. Hey, man. What's up? <laughs> How has your week been? Um, really crazy busy, but um, yeah, no, no complaints really. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> my week has been long and slow. I am literally on the cusp of getting on an airplane and making the Mecca down to Disney so I can go to Galaxy's Edge and actually like fly the Millennium Falcon and do all the fun Star Wars stuff that I've been dying to do for a few years now. Um, and yeah. every day feels like it's like, can you just hurry up and get me to the end of the day? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, so I'll have a full report uh, from going to Galaxy's Edge, which I know there's a lot of people have gone down there and there's a lot of internet reports and stuff. But uh, this is, for a lifelong Star Wars fan like myself, this is like a, I, f- I feel like this is like sacred ground kind of stuff when it ter- in terms of this. Um I know the real sacred ground is like actual shooting locations or Skywalker Ranch, but this is as close as I'm going to get for right now. So, yeah. <laughs> right on. <laughs> um, at any rate, um, we have a ton of stuff to cover, so let's not waste any time and jump right in. Um, what are we watching? What are we reading, man? Yeah, right on. Um, so there's a couple big TV shows that came out um, that I had a chance had a chance to watch. I'm hoping you have two, but um, I guess I can. <laughs> you say a uh, couple big ones. There's one for sure, and then I'm curious what the other one is. So, like I feel like I missed out on something. <laughs> so la- last last week we didn't talk about Halo yet, which I had a chance oh, right, to watch the right, first right. episode, but not the second. And sure. then um, last night at the time of our recording, uh, Moon Moon Knight came out, so I had a chance to watch that as well. Yeah, um, I watched Moon Knight, so we'll talk about that as well. So nice. Um, and did you watch Halo? I have not watched Halo yet. So you're gonna have to regale oh, me with wow. your. I know, I know. Okay, I don't. Well, have, I don't have access to Paramount Plus yet. Oh, um, I gotcha. And when I looked at so, the and when I looked at the free trial, it's only seven days. So my thinking was give the season a little bit to get going and then hit it so I could burn it all in the trial because I don't know if I want the full network yet. Yeah, it's um yeah, so we have Paramount Plus and I haven't used the uh I haven't used the app very much, but it's one of those things that Every time I go into it, I just find something right away that I want to watch. Um, sure. Like, I reviewed uh, Scream a couple of weeks ago, and that movie was one of the big ones that's streaming in there right now. And, uh, yeah, Halo, what can I say about this movie? It's, uh, or I mean the show, it kind of it, it kind of sucks because, Drew, I know you would have a lot more detailed sort of Halo universe nitpicks and stuff to go off of. <laughs> it picks. I just kind of, yeah. <laughs> I just kind of overall enjoyed, like, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty fun series, but 
I don't know that I thought it was the amazing, the most amazing thing ever. I think it's a, um, I think it's a franchise that you go into and you're expecting a lot from just because of how good the games have been. And I think when you watch the show overall, for the most part, it looks really good. But then there's a couple of the CG shots of like the elites and some of the other, um, sort of just sci-fi elements that maybe aren't as uh, up to par as I was hoping for. And um, there's a couple sections of this show where I kind of felt like, and I've heard this complaint a lot, but some of the characters they focus on feel a little bit inconsequential. Like you have uh, this one guy who's like a pretty important character, but the show like focuses on his daughter a lot and kind of like her complaints and, uh, culture shock in this like sci-fi world that the show takes place and stuff and you're kind of like well i don't know if i care too much about this character but some of the other stuff that's going on is pretty cool but yeah it's kind of i feel like i'm having a vague review but i'm also not the halo super fan so that's kind of where i can leave it as like i liked it for the most part for the most part it looked really good except some of the cg was a little spotty um another thing that somebody pointed out to me is uh there's, like, on one of the planets, there's people driving around, like, Chevy Tahoes or something like that. <laughs> like, they're driving, like, really regular-looking Earth trucks, and that's a little bit jarring. <laughs> but for the most part, I think it's pretty cool. I'm going to stick with it, and I think I'm going to have more to say in the episodes to come. But, uh, Drew, I was hoping you had seen this one just because I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, and I'm sorry I hadn't. I will say this, though. Um, some of the... Uh some of the things, like, in terms of, like, the people driving vehicles, you're dealing with, you're dealing with a war between, you know, the basically the government and the insurrectionists, or the people trying to break away, yeah. and, you know, cause problems, and they're not as well-funded. So seeing right. vehicles like that that don't necessarily fit the time period might not necessarily be a bad thing when you deal with the actual, like, uh, visualization, if you just look at the games alone, you don't get to see a lot of insurrectionists tech. Um, yeah. So that might be okay. Um, and it might not be as jarring as you think. Um, I did see some reviews where they're saying it's one of the worst video game adaptations ever. Um, and it just basically sits at the top of the podium in terms of worst video game adaptations. Um, <laughs> it's only a couple episodes in though, so we don't necessarily know. We also know that um, a friend of mine told me that the show takes place very much before the events of Reach. Uh, and I refer, okay. to the, I refer to the fall of Reach when I say this because um, Reach was attacked by the Covenant first. And then that started the war with the Covenant, uh, with the Covenant race, with the, the Covenant being the alien race. And it kind of goes from there, which leads into the events of the first game. This is before the fall of Reach, so um, there's still ground to cover in terms of the insurrectionist war before everything goes goes bad. And because I haven't watched the show, I just know the story well enough to have that conversation with you. So if that opens up your eyes a little bit, okay, <laughs> you know. So no, absolutely, I think that context helps and. Uh... As far as, like, the sort of, like, regular-looking pickup trucks 
driving around. I didn't think that was that jarring, but I've heard it as a complaint from, uh, I can't remember who was, who I was talking to who pointed that out. But, um, I also think it's funny <laughs> saying Halo is one of the worst video game adaptations ever. That's kind of a funny statement. And I don't think it's true because video game adaptations aren't known as being the great, <laughs> the greatest things. Right. Like most TV shows and movies based off video games have been very, very panned uh, critically. So that kind of surprises me, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I guess I'm just not a super huge halo story nerd and I just don't have a lot to say about it yet. I in, from my perspective, I thought it was just kind of a solid science fiction show. I think I was hoping it for it to be a little bit more mind blowing, but yeah, it was pretty good. I'll I'll keep watching it, sort yeah. of thing. I mean, um, that's to say. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other thing I wanted to mention because I can't remember if I if I mentioned this on the podcast, but I did finally finish watching uh, Vox Machina or the yeah. Legend of Vox Machina. Um, I thought the show was really great. I mean, I've been giving it nothing but glowing reviews, but it's one of those things where by the time you get to the last few episodes and uh, the sort of uh, giant battle scene that takes place and stuff, I was really kind of astonished at how cine- cinematic everything felt. Like, the fight scenes in the show have been pretty solid, but when it gets to the end, like, some of those uh, camera shots, or I don't know how you want to phrase it, but yeah, some sure. of those shots in the last few episodes were actually really cinematic and really cool. And I was really surprised with that. Um, and I thought this one, like the series finale of the show kind of followed the, the same form as the rest of the show where basically it just is jumping right into the next adventure that the characters are going to go on. And I thought that was pretty awesome as well. Right. And it's because that's what it would be. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, that's cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, I I look for I look heavily forward to the next season and stuff. So yeah, absolutely. And I feel like with a project like this, it's probably going to be a few years before we get an, another season. Does that sound right? Or um, yeah, we it might be a year or two before we see the next season. Yeah. You think of like a show <laughs> like that, the animators got to get right back to work. Um, and we don't know the process because they were that took them like three years to get that season out, but. The way you do that is you get the one done, and while the one's – the way most television works is while the one's going, you're working on the next. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. hopefully they're cruising along with that. So we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But. <laughs> yeah, right Right on. That was just kind of my main fear is, like, because it's a an animated project and it's kind of a – I don't know how to phrase it, but it started off as, like, an indie thing, and now it's, like, an, a prime original show and stuff – you kind of don't know what the release schedule's like, and I'm just hoping we're not waiting like three or four years for the next season. No, I could, um, I could see them. I could see them trying to do it a year at a time or a year or two at a time. You know, if you yeah. think about if you think about anime by itself, not just regular animation, but like Japanese anime. Here in the states, it takes a while for us to get it anyway. So unless you're watching it through like unless you're watching it through like Crunchyroll or something like that, you're it takes a while for us to get it. So sometimes we're behind to begin with. So, yeah. Yeah. And I was actually going to mention, I actually ran into that. Um, I remember watching, I think the first two seasons of attack on Titan, like pretty current to when the show was coming out. And I think it was the third season took 
two or three years after that to come out. And it was, I, I actually kind of never picked the show back up just because it was like, so much has happened in that <laughs> those three years since I last watched the second season, you know? Um, yeah. But, but other than Moon Knight, that actually pretty much does it for me. So have you watched or read anything cool? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I finished, uh, Sword Art Online season four, which is the most current season. Um, absolutely love that show. Such a cool, such a cool season, such a cool arc. Such a cool ending to the season and where you feel like you're literally at the end, like legit, like, oh my God, is this like a series finale? Um, a black screen comes up and it gives you the Kirito will return and you're just like, yes, thank God there's more coming. You know what I mean? So, um, that, it was awesome. It was fantastic. Nice. Um, I watched The Atom Project, uh, this week. Oh, cool. Um, it's very, very fun movie. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, it never stops. There's never a moment, like, all the exposition is done during the action sequences, and it just goes and goes and goes. It just never quits, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, the uh, the time travel thing you were talking about, I've been scratching my brain about it since <laughs> I saw the movie. Um, and well. And you well, mentioned, you mentioned about the, uh, every time travel movie has their own rules for time travel, which is fine, but it's the, con- it's the, you have to be in your correct time. So when you go back in time or you go forward in time, your brain automatically course corrects itself, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when he's like, why don't I have memory of this? Or like when the kid asks like about the memories, he's like, it, everything gets course corrected. It's essentially, he tells yep. him that everything gets course corrected because you're out of your normal time. And now that's becoming your correct time. And that made me think about the time travel in the show lost when they were talking about your constant, like no matter where you are in the placement of time, you will always have a, you'll have something that'll be your constant and it will, it'll be something that'll be in every timeline that you'll be a part of. You'll have this constant. Thing. Yeah. Um, it made me think about that, but it also made me scratch my brain a little bit about the memories because of that paradox issue. Did this happen in the future because of my influence in the past when I went back in time to adjust this thing that's where I've been scratching my brain about it. But you know what? That's where we start drawing, making diagrams with straws, and then we're here for all, all week. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I I just thought it was cool how there's, like, it felt like your timelines aren't necessarily, like, these concrete things. It felt like it was kind of this, however you affect the past or future, it kind of all sort of melds together, and it felt like... uh to me, it made it feel like the timeline was more of a organic changing thing, which, which I thought was really interesting, actually. And right. probably that there's only one timeline as well, which I don't know. It is one of those things that's fun to uh, think about for sure. Right. And it is. But that's where I felt. But what you just said is where I felt like the movie kind of contradicted itself in the rules of time a little bit because I was right. like, hold on a second. You just said, you know, you just said a. And I feel like you're saying B right now, but my brain hasn't fully wrapped around it yet. But I'm going to try and just enjoy for what I'm watching and just enjoy for what I'm watching. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, um, absolutely. Trying to, some of and it I, I was trying to be forgiving in terms of some of that techno babble, but that's okay. <laughs> absolutely. But I also kind of think that's the kind of movie it is. Like, I don't think it's the movie that calls for, like, this really hard assessment of all the rules and the timeline and everything. I think it's just a really fun, solid sort of 
sci-fi action romp that's just a really good time to watch, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, ultimately, the movie was a lot of fun. It was great. Uh, the casting was really great. Uh, there was a lot of stuff in there that was surprises, which was really, which was really cool. And, you know, it was just a roller coaster of a movie. And sometimes that's what you want is just something fun, and you can turn your brain off and enjoy, even though I was trying to di- dissect it a little bit while I was watching. Um, <laughs> I loved the uh, – sorry not to keep harping oh. on this movie, but uh, I loved the uh, lightsaber joke in there. I thought it was pretty great. Yeah, too. and then he turns it on. He's like, oh, dude, that's a lightsaber. And what's yeah. interesting is it's, it's clearly a weapon that's inspired by a lightsaber, but it's definitely oh, yeah. not a lightsaber. You know what I mean? It's like, like a double-bladed plasma Staff or something like that. Plasma, staff, beat, uh, riot, baton or something. Like, you know what I mean? It's some kind of, yeah. definitely not a lightsaber. They weren't ripping off lightsabers, but it was cool. Um, and I think it's funny after watching Free Guy, um, and correct me if I'm remembering this uh, incorrectly, but this is the second movie <laughs> that hasn't been a Star Wars movie where Ryan Reynolds has held a lightsaber, correct? Um... Didn't he have a, a lightsaber at the end of Free Guy? He did, but my yeah. um was trying to remember back if there was any lightsaber joke in Van Wilder, because if there would have been another <laughs> Ryan, if there was another Ryan Reynolds movie that would have done it, it would have been that movie. I've seen that movie so many times, and I don't think there was any lightsabers in there. I don't, I don't think there was either, but that would have been the movie to yeah. make the joke in. You know what I mean? So, but. I mean, he's probably going to have a lightsaber in uh, Deadpool 3 at this point. You know? Oh, yeah. Why at not, this, at so. this point, why not? Especially uh, especially because of the Disney <laughs> banner. So, you know, we'll he's, the, he's like the secret Jedi who can rival Jar Jar Binks' secret Sith master uh, presence, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, before we talk about Moon Knight, actually, yeah, let's, how about this? Some of this stuff rolls into news. So, let's start with Moon Knight. Um, I thought it was awesome. Um, ultimately just right. the, the first episode was fantastic. Um, I like the direction with the Steven versus the Mark Spector. Um, for those of you who don't know, he is Mark Spector. And I thought that was a really cool redirect to make us think it kind of go in one way and then flip it around at the end with the, you know, I'm Mark. Um, yeah. the, uh, hearing, uh, con- Conusif, however you say the Egyptian God having his voiceover, like talking to him. I thought that was phenomenal. Um, the, I loved seeing him in the costume and that bit where he beat the hell out of the jackal that was chasing him in the, uh, um, I'm assuming it was a jackal, but the jackal that was chasing him in the museum. Amazing. Yeah. Um, my big Marvel Easter egg that I'm curious about, um, well, there's two Marvel Easter eggs. First off, there's a QR code somewhere in the show, which I didn't see. I read about this online. I'm, I feel <laughs> oh, like man. I want to go back and watch. But there's a QR code that if you scan it with your phone, it unlocks a free Moon Knight comic for you to read. Um, wow. So I thought that was pretty cool. But the big Easter egg, which I wonder if it's an Easter egg. I could be wrong, but they didn't really clarify that, like, European village or wherever he woke up. They didn't 100% clarify what that was. Right. And it showed a castle. Yeah. So my, so my brain, I, I know I went here, but I don't know if I'm correct on this. I wonder if that was Lavertra and that was Doom's castle. Okay. That's what I thought you were going to say. And okay. that's something that didn't even cross my mind, but that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we haven't gotten to the Fantastic Four yet, but we know they're coming. 
And it just made me wonder because Marvel is known for laying big Easter eggs like that. And you go, oh, wait, it was in here the whole time. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> Ten Rings. It's kind of like the Ten Rings references in Iron Man 1. So, right. Know, think about it that way. Yeah. yeah, that would be really interesting. And then it makes me wonder how um, Ethan uh, Hawke's character fits into if that is. Did you say Laverta? I always thought La it was like Latveria or something. Latveria, Lavertra. I don't know. Every time I read it um, in the books, I think it's spelled, it's pronounced differently. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it makes me wonder how like his character factors into if that is indeed where it is. Like, how does he does he have a relationship with Doctor Doom and stuff? But that's really interesting. I kind of want to go back and rewatch this show with that in mind. Um, now he might so, not. It might not be that. Uh, they just didn't yeah. clarify whose castle it was, and they didn't clarify the the uh, the town. But it just made me go, "There's a possibility that's what this is." So yeah, well, I was kind of trying to figure out the town's location because I guess it's in like the UK somewhere rural, but I'm not really sure because if I remember correctly, the people were speaking English, but it almost felt like he was in some other Euro- European country or something like that at the time. And uh, so I'm actually, I guess I'm with you. I'm really curious where exactly he was and what was going on, but I'm sure the show is going to reveal more considering we've only watched <laughs> the first episode so I far. I know. I almost wish there was two episodes for the sake of this conversation, but that's okay. <laughs> right on. Um, um, the one thing I, I think I mentioned it on the podcast, but uh, the one thing I really like is that uh I think I said, like, this feels, like, the trailer made it feel like this is Marvel's version of Fight Club, in a way. And I kind of feel, still feel that way. Like, this is, yeah, gives me yeah. weird, like, Fight Club vibes, but it has the cool supernatural vibes, you know. And we haven't even really fully gotten to the superhero vibes yet, but there's just a lot of <laughs> really cool vibes going on, which I'm really digging with this. And uh the fact that it is in England, we talked about this last week, but... The fact that it is in England, so you have that cool sort of destination landscape you're dealing with, and it's a little bit different than a lot of the other Marvel shows and uh, movies that have taken place in New York and stuff like that. It is a really, so far, it's just really, really fun. Like, I've really enjoyed this first episode, but right. um, I don't know if I caught up, cut you off at any point if you had more to no, say I was, all I was a little gonna, bit ago. That this, well, what I was going to say is this, we don't have much more to say about it. Other than yeah. that, it's a really cool first episode, and we're still kind of watching to see where this goes. I've read enough Moon Knight to be able to watch this episode and go, oh, we're going this way. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious to see how this plays out. Um, yeah. I do want to say that uh, last week we talked about how one of the this, the show's director says this has nothing to do with the current MCU, and they're taking it a whole new direction, going back to the roots of, like, Iron Man 1. Um. Which is interesting because this week, um, Moon Knight producer uh, Grant Curtis confirms Moon Knight is in the MCU, even if it doesn't take place in New York City, which is home to the Avengers and Spider-Man. The observant viewer is going to hear and see Easter eggs that we drop to explain and confirm that. Oh, I mean, I was sure that they were going to be in there regardless. Oh, me too. I just uh, thought it was funny that you had one person (laughs) saying no and the other person saying yes. So... There is that. I feel like I feel like both things can be true at the same time in a way where, yes, like 
this show is its own thing. It's obviously like tonally, it's so much different than a lot of the Marvel shows that we've seen, but it also like, there's going to be those connected, that connective tissue. There's going to be those Easter eggs in there and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe someday we'll get moon Knight on the big screen and that'll be pretty awesome too. So, yeah, um, very much so. Okay, let's move on. Like I said, we have a ton, but this is gonna, <laughs> but this is gonna roll us into the news. So, um, this is gonna go from what I watched into straight to news, and that is, I watched the Oscars this weekend. Did you? <laughs> because I feel I watched that- part of the Oscars. <laughs> I feel that what happened is, is everyone's like, Oscars. Normally when I talk to my friends, like, you watch the Oscars every year? And then I go, yes, I do, because I support the industry, and I like watching it. I like talk, I like, anytime there's a conversation about movies, I want to be a part of it, right? So, yes, that's why I watch the Oscars. I feel like there's a moment in the Oscars where everyone went, what is going on? And everyone turned to their TV to the Oscars. Um, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> we're not going to talk about that, because, yes, it was the slap heard around the world, but I will say this, even though that's the one that's being most talked about, that wasn't the biggest slap that was heard at the Oscars, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. <laughs> um, real quick, this is huge. Uh, Dune was up for the most Oscars, and it won the most Oscars for the night. Um, it won okay, it, awesome. it had six wins, including best sound, production design, film editing, cinematography, visual effects, and score. Um, so good for Dune. That's awesome. And the reason I highlight that is specifically because it's sci-fi fantasy and it doesn't often, sci-fi fantasy doesn't often get voted for when you deal with the Academy on that level. Um, so I wanted to point that out. The other one, uh, best picture winner was Coda. Um, the more and more they talked about Coda throughout the night, I realized this is most likely going to be a best picture. Uh, it will be the best picture winner, which it was. Um, I've not seen it, but I really want to now. Um, it's about a deaf family, uh, that, like, it's about a deaf husband and wife who work in a fishing village and stuff, and the daughter's not deaf, and they're trying to, like, communicate and all this stuff. What's interesting about this is that they shot it in 30 days. So, in the realm of, like, film and all that stuff, this is a shot in 30 days, released on a streaming service, wins Best Picture. Right. Not, not only did it win Best Picture, it also won Best Supporting Actor, and he's the first male actor who's deaf to win that award. Oh, um, nice. Which is which is astounding. The other cool thing about him winning is that actor uh, Troy uh, Coster, I think that's how I pronounce his last name. He is the actor who created the sign language for the Sand People in The Mandalorian. Oh, that's that's awesome. Uh, I just thought that was awesome. I, I read that. I found that out after he won the award, but it was just the, like, you had the moment of him winning, which was really, really amazing, and then you had um, the movie winning, which was amazing, too. So I really want to see Coda, but um, I just haven't had a chance to yet. Um, overall, I was pretty happy with the majority of the wins. Um, I did think, uh, I do think Encanto is incredibly overrated and is not at all deserving of that best feature, animated feature. I think it should have gone to Raya the Last Dragon, but almost the entire animated segment was Disney-nominated films. So, um, yeah, and that's, that's a little unfortunate. Not that Disney doesn't do an amazing job with their animated movies, but right. I feel like there's other ones that were probably overlooked just because they were more independent or may or just more off the beaten path. But uh, yeah, I mean, 
yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen Encanto yeah. yet either, so I can't really comment on that one yet. But yeah. All right. Are you ready to hear about the biggest slap that was not heard the way the other one was? <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah. This is massive. Okay, and this is something that I didn't really fully understand what was going on. The Academy had two Oscar, two Oscars that they did, they handed out over Twitter, and the Academy didn't vote. They were voted for by fans. Oh, okay. Okay. I think I think I know where you're going with this. I heard briefly about. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> right. One of the, one of those was greatest cheer moment in movies, and the other one was best film. Right, and greatest cheer moment, I don't even know what that is, but the fact that there's an Academy Award <laughs> that's called that is right. kind of mind-boggling in this day and age. True, but, but this was not done by the, this was not voted on by anyone in the Academy. This was sent out to Twitter so fans could vote. So first off, let's talk about best film. Okay? Um, I think it was best film. Hang up. This is this blows my mind. This is a thing because it makes me so it makes me really happy at the same time. Uh okay, cheerworthy moment and um it was cheerworthy moment and overall fan favorite. Um, okay. Over overall fan favorite, guess what that went to? I, I, I already know, but Zach, Zach <laughs> Snyder's Army of the Dead. Yeah. Yeah, I did hear about that and I thought it was pretty pretty awesome. Which uh, is which is awesome. Secondly, yeah. Oh, uh, the cheer moment. How does I how they word that? Cheerworthy moment went to Zack Snyder's Justice League, beating out Spider-Man, oh. Spider-Man No Way Home, um, the three Spider-Man fighting on the Statue of Liberty, and the Endgame moment, the Avengers Assemble Endgame moment. It got beat out by Zack Snyder's Justice League Flash going into the Speed Force. Well, yeah, and I actually, um, I that's really amazing. Um, I think. People say that, that Zack Snyder has a cult, and I definitely think he has a cult following, but uh-huh. he, when it comes down to it, he's got a group of really loyal fans who really see the value in his art yes. and the movies that he makes, and it's awesome to see, especially after seeing how divisive uh, Batman v Superman and even Man of Steel were, it's awesome to see Zack Snyder getting this sort of recognition, so that's kind of where I'm at with it. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts well, it's not my thoughts. Check this out. According to sources, okay, you got to remember something that uh, HBO Max and uh, Warner Brothers is all being sold to Discovery Plus, and that merger is not a hundred percent through yet. I mean, the, it's done, but it's not. The merger is like going on right now. According to sources, yes. the successful Twitter campaigns for Zack Snyder at the Oscars stunned incoming Discovery executives. For the current Warner Brothers regime, who despise the Snyderverse. This was the loudest slap in the face at the Oscars. Basically, all the people who were against Zack Snyder, Ann Sarnoff, uh, Jim Kalar, all the people who had a pro- who fought and argued and basically said the Snyder Cut can't happen, and they had to basically yeah. they were wrong and allow the Snyder Cut to happen. That was the slap in the face. Was Zack Snyder winning two Oscars <laughs> because the fans said "f you" to "f you" Ann Sarnoff? We're giving this guy's due. Um, Gary Gary McGill, admin of the founder of the related Make the Batfleck movie, posted a screenshot that hinted Discovery's response. 
Make the Batfleck movie campaign and had a billboard truck parked outside the Discovery Global headquarters in New York. Um, we request that you please make Ben Affleck's solo movie read the digital billboard addressing Discovery uh, CEO David Zazov. Um, the ad asks uh, Zazov and WBD to give Affleck creative control to make a key chapter in the Snyderverse and the best Batman movie ever made. Um, McGill's screenshot is a chat between the campaign account and the billboard company. The latter revealed that there's a lot of buzz coming from the building. The building security is going to talk to the Discovery CEO. He said there is nothing derogatory in the message. Your message has made its way all the way to the top. Um, all right, then. The fandom is unstoppable, avid David uh, John Lincoln, otherwise known as the Savage Bat from the Snyder Knights. Insiders continue to say that Discovery will restore the Snyderverse, and it's really not a question of if, it's a question of when. There'll be a transitional <laughs> period of musical chairs at the executive levels and below. After the dust is cleared, there will be a new beginning. <laughs> In the awesome. meantime, Zack Snyder's fans will continue to march on um, aging trekkers. To, aging trekkers will think of their younger days and how history repeats itself. <laughs> um, this blew my mind because... In all the realm, in the realm of all that, how did Flash entering the Speed Force beat out No Way Home and Avengers Endgame? It's because of the cult following, and when they left it open to the fans to vote, everyone went said "F you" and Sarnoff, and said Zack Snyder, you're getting all the attention right now. Um, so yes, there was another slap that happened at the uh, Oscars, but in comparison, not industry shaking, in my opinion. So. <laughs> No, I actually love that. The uh, the whole, like, that was a slap in the face of, uh, you know, the Warner Brothers execs trying to hold back the Snyderverse. Did you come up with that phrasing? Because <laughs> I actually think it's, like, super clever. I, I got a pretty big kick out of that. I don't know if you made that up, Drew, or if you um, got that from somewhere. Sort but. of. I was just reading. I'm like, how am I going to word this on the show? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's really awesome. But overall, this is just amazing. I think... Um, when you compare this to No Way Home or Endgame, I think there is a level of um, the Snyder fans are just it's hard to keep to not keep going back to that sort of like cult using the word cult fan base. But it's and I mean that in a really good way. Just the Snyder fans are so loyal. And, uh, you know, if you're a Snyder fan, like you really do believe in Zack Snyder. And I think it's just that loyalty that's really given him and his movies this time to shine right now. And it's just all, it's all just really amazing stuff. So I don't even know what to say besides that, but uh, yeah, you're right. This is the slap <laughs> that we should, that we should be talking about. This is the uh, yeah. true slap. I guess this is so. that thing where like Microsoft buys Activision, Microsoft buys Bethesda, Sony buys uh, Bungie, which are ground shaking or uh, ground shaking, industry massive changes to the gaming industry and then the new york times buys wordle and that makes news and the other ones don't you know <laughs> this is that situation where the one created news <laughs> because of the people involved where this one should have made news because of what's going to come out of it absolutely um, uh the, the only other thing i wanted to comment on as far as the uh sort of bat batman or not sorry Ben Affleck uh, billboard and stuff like that is just I want to see Ben Affleck to come back um, and leave his creative stamp on a project in the Snyderverse and all that. But it just really depends on I know, like, 
it was probably, what was it, a month or two ago, we were talking about how, yeah, he's, you know, he's we, as long as he's game for it, like, as long as he wants to come back, he should do it. But I don't want but, the fans to, like, be forcing him I back into this is, making this is a new my, Batman movie, you know? As much as I want to see it, because I would love to have another Ben Affleck, I really want the Ben Affleck solo movie, because I think he did such an amazing job as the character. But if we can't get him to act in it, can we have him direct it? Right. You know, he doesn't have to play Batman, but he is an amazing director. So yeah. maybe we get his script and his direction, and then he doesn't have to worry about acting, and then we just have, we still got our Ben Affleck movie. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's kind yeah, of, absolutely. you know, so at this point, after seeing the Batman and how amazing it was, and just the single take by itself, I'm down for anyone's version. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> just give me another take, you know? Um, all right, moving Absolutely. on. Moving on, we'll hit some quick hits. We got some other ones to talk about. Um, okay, first off, uh, Morbius comes out this weekend. I will be seeing it on Saturday. I can't wait. Um, so I will have a Morbius review soon. Um, the some of the a lot of the reviews hitting the internet right now are fairly negative, and they're saying it's a very clunky, uh, worst of the comic book movies kind of a thing. I don't care. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. <laughs> Um, I've, I, I've been hearing that, and I'm waiting to absolutely, absolutely love it. <laughs> and sometimes right. even it might be a deeply flawed film, but as long as it's interesting and it's like fun to watch, I'm probably going to like yeah. it. Um, just because sometimes flawed films are more interesting than your perfect, uh, yeah. you know, perfectly made films. You yeah. know what I mean? So. Now, now the thing about Morbius is the big question that's been raised is which, and I don't know why this is a question. And I don't know why this is becoming – I never thought there was a – okay, let me rephrase. What what Spider-Verse, which Spider-Man universe does Morbius take place in is the question. Okay, so is it Tom Holland? Is it Andrew Garfield? Or is it Tobey Maguire? Which Spider-Man universe does is, is Morbius take place in? We know, Venom, we know Venom was a part of a Spider-Verse. He jumped over to the MCU because of the thing that happened in No Way Home, and then he got yanked back. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, where does Morbius fit in? Okay. So the thing that makes me wonder about this is my brain automatically assumed it was Tom Holland's universe because Michael Keaton's in the movie. Oh, yeah, you're right. I never questioned, I never questioned where Morbius sat in the universe is because Michael Keaton's in the movie, and Michael Keaton played (laughs) the vulture in the Tom Holland movie Spider-Man Homecoming. So unless there's a dimensional rift that we get to see in Morbius that jumps Michael Keaton into this other universe, I think Morbius takes place in the Spider-Man universe. Um, Spider-Man director, um, Daniel Espanyol, Espinoza, sorry, I don't know why I blanked on that name. Daniel Espinoza confirmed the film exists in Venom's universe, and there is a Spider-Man in that world, but director wouldn't reveal which one, but we'll see him soon. And see, okay. I always I always assumed that uh, Morbius was going to be in Venom's universe. And, like, I think the Michael Keaton, that's a good thing to point out, but I just always remembered that you know, him saying that I am Venom line in the trailer. And I always just thought like, oh, well, he's in Venom's universe. So sure. yeah, I'm really not sure at this point. <laughs> well, not only am I not sure, but comic book timelines and universes can get clunky. 
right? But we live in a world where people need to understand. We live in, like, if you just follow comic books, they can get clunky, and no one seems to mind so much. When you deal with film and television, people mind a lot, and <laughs> um, they can get really vocal about it. So I don't have a problem with it being clunky because I read comic books, and I know it's, no, it's not nearly as clunky as the X-Men timeline ends up being at some point. So <laughs> as long as we eventually get an answer and it kind of works itself out, I'm down for the ride until things start falling into place. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the comics, there's always, like, so many questions about, like, wait, how many different superhero teams is Wolverine on at the same time, you know? And, like, how come when this disaster happens, you know, like, so many different heroes don't just show up, you know? (laughs) Why doesn't the Hulk just come in here and, you know, take some people out? But I think, um, I don't know, I think the more superhero movies you make, the more it's going to get clunky. Not everything's going to be wound up in a nightly, a nice little bow like that. But I think yeah. that's part of the reason we love the uh, comic booky madness of it all as well, you know, because it has these conversations about how the logistics of everything that's going on just doesn't seem to pan out <laughs> when you think about it. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, all right. Let's talk about other stuff, shall we? All right, let's do some quick hits. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. There's a new Top Gun trailer. Have you watched it? I haven't watched it yet. I didn't. Okay. I, I think I saw it, but I just I didn't realize it was a new one. Well, this <laughs> new. Sense. And here's the thing: you watch the you watch a trailer a lot of time lately. I haven't been watching trailers to go. Ooh, I got to watch that trailer because it's the fourth one coming out. I just don't want things spoiling the movie for me. Yeah. The reason I watched this trailer is because they specifically, when it hit the news, it specifically said this trailer shows you get to see the first look at Iceman because of Val Kilmer's return. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought to myself, oh, that's interesting because of the throat cancer, because they had to doctor the voice digitally and all that stuff. I was like, cool, let's, let me watch this trailer. This trailer gives more of the story, so you have more of an idea of where the story's headed, which... Kind of was eye-opening. So I definitely say go check it out. Um, okay, cool. The bit with Iceman is it's basically all they show is his picture hanging on the wall. Um, but Iceman's real name, his character name, Tom Kazansky, call sign Iceman, um, there's a line in the trailer where he says, you're here um, on by request of Admiral Kazansky, a.k.a. Okay, Iceman. Nice. He believes you still have something you can offer the Navy, blah, 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 because they basically, so clearly Iceman called Tom Cruise back. Yeah. Uh, which is awesome. The other part of the trailer that caught my attention was Miles Teller's in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you watch the trailer, you know Miles Teller's in the movie. Miles Teller is Goose's son. Oh, interesting. And my brain went, oh my God, and he totally blames Maverick for the death of his dad. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. That is so cool. And (laughs) I was like, I was already in for the movie, but I was like, that is such a cool bit there. You should never have put that in the trailer, but that is awesome. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Um, Yeah, it's it's such a cool bit of tension that's really, I think it's it's making me more excited about the movie. Um, I'm also wondering is... It makes me more excited. So even though I know it's coming, gosh, that's cool. Like, that's just so (laughs) smart. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> and then is is he playing the same uh, Goose's son that we saw on screen in the first movie? That'd be, that'd be my guess because he only had yeah. a kid. So, mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and now I'm just laughing at myself because I realize that's such a stupid question. <laughs> but yeah, good call. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, okay, uh, where was I? Um, alright, quick hit. Ron Howard is working on a Jim Henson documentary. Awesome. Okay. I, I nice. can't, I can't wait. Um, so he's got the he's full support from the fam, the Henson family. Um, it's still an untitled, but um, you got a really great guy behind trying to put together a movie like that. I'm really excited to see it. Um, Peter, you're a Spy Kids fan, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I'm glad I pull out news stories sometimes, and I don't do it just to make you laugh. It literally catches my attention. Okay. Um, Robert Rodriguez, who wrote and directed the original Spy Kids film, is working on a written and directed by Robert Rodriguez Spy Kids reboot for Netflix. Okay. So, um, so if you're a Spy Kids fan, it's coming back. <laughs> well, I will say I I was never into Spy Kids. It definitely it came out when I was in like high school, and it just wasn't <laughs> like I wasn't going to watch that. But I have put. Spy Kids and, like, Shark Boy and Lava Girl on for my son, and he gets really engrossed with them, so I think, it's the I think on a level, <laughs> what's that? I said it's the flashy colors. But I, but I think Robert Rodriguez was really smart in the way that he made those movies, and, like, yeah, the special effects are bad, and it's, like, all green screen stuff, but it also really captures a kid's imagination with how it's shot, and I think... um I, like, I can't say that I'm a fan of the movies, but I can admire his insight into how he made them. So I'm sure that Netflix Spy Kids movie will be on at my house probably more than I'd like to say. But, <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. Uh, you will be interested in this. There is a television show rumored for HBO Max. Right now it's a rumor. It is a prequel to It. Um, yes, and, I did hear about that. And it is titled Welcome this. to Deary, um, mm-hmm. which sounds great. Right now it is just a rumor, but we know how the Internet works, so we'll tell you more when we know more. <laughs> I, so. I think this is a really cool idea. I think it does say think, real quick. It does say it's supposed to discuss, uh, cover the origin of Pennywise. So. Okay, the origin is really interesting, too, um, because if you remember the story of It, you know that Pennywise comes back around, like, every, I don't know if it was every 20 years or what exactly the, um, you know, what exactly the time gap is, but he comes back every, you know, every, like, he comes back incrementally to uh, wreak havoc, and I thought it would be kind of cool if they did do this prequel series where, each um, season, they could just focus on, like, a different era that Pennywise came back and how that all played out. Like, I think that's a really cool idea. I would imagine the people at HBO Max are kind of thinking along the same lines. Like, we'll see how this goes, but we can keep milking this franchise for all that it's worth. And I think, obviously, the new It movies have been so popular. And uh, I'm I'm just – I am excited about this. Like, this is going to be really cool, and I'll definitely be watching it and reporting on it when the series comes out. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of this is really cool and let's milk this series, uh, <laughs> HBO Max's House of the Dragon has officially released – as a new – as an actual release date now. Uh, cool. So, uh, August 21st, 
I can't wait, dude. Like they released, they That's didn't release great. a trailer, but they did release some new imagery. It's mostly characters and stuff, but um, it just looks good. I, you know, I'm, I'm in. Like, you know, it's it's Game of Thrones, so let's do it. House of the Dragon. I'm August just 20, waiting. August 21st. Oh. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just waiting. Ever since the uh, Game of Thrones uh, proper series uh, ended, I think like there's been so many Game of Thrones haters, and I'm just waiting for everybody to jump back on the bandwagon and watch <laughs> this new series. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's going to be pretty amusing to see all these people who have been hating on just Game of Thrones as a, as a franchise in general, just to hop back on and start watching this new show with everybody else. Right. Well, speaking of milking a franchise... Um, <laughs> More milking. Yeah. Michael Bay admits that he made too many Transformers movies. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Michael Bay says, I made too many of them. Steven Spielberg said, just stop at three. And I said, I'd stop. The studio begged me to do a fourth, and then that, and then I made a, and then that one made a billion too, and then I said I'm gonna stop here, and they begged me again. I should have stopped, but they were fun to do. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the quote was funny because Steven Spielberg said stop. <laughs> um, That's funny. So yeah. Well, I think I think he had a point because it's those first three movies kind of tells the story of uh, Sam Witwicky and his, like, relation to the Transformers and stuff. And then once you get into the fourth movie and you're introducing new characters, um, it is it does become, like, a little bit like, yeah, maybe it should have stopped, you know, yeah. during the last movie, but it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, can um, there really be too many transforming giant robots running around fighting each other? Yeah. <laughs> That's the well, real question. No, no, there can't. It's because we had Transformers and we had GoBots. So, no, no, there can't. Absolutely. Uh, um, all right. Also, milking franchises, we have more Star Wars on the way. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the premiere date is March 25th. March 25th. Mm-hmm. Jeez, we're past March 25th. Not March 25th. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me correct myself. It is May 25th, which wow. here's the thing. You are, if you're a Star Wars, if you're living in this world, you know that National Star Wars Day is May the 4th because, you know, may the 4th be with you, right? Haha, ha, funny word on play joke. Goes all the way back to Margaret Thatcher being, you know, um, inducted as prime minister in the newspaper headline, blah, blah, blah. If you're a real Star Wars fan, you know that the real Star Wars Day is May 25th because that is the release date of the original Star Wars, A New Hope, in theaters, period. Um, when people on May 4th are like, hey, it's Star Wars Day, because they know I'm a Star Wars fan, I'm thinking to myself, dude, every day is Star Wars Day. Um, but <laughs> Obi-Wan, Kenobi is right. supposed to re- Obi-Wan Kenobi is supposed to release on Friday, or on Wednesday, May 25th. It has been moved to Friday. Wow. It's been moved to Friday, May 27th, which kind of sucks, because it would have been awesome to have it released on the 25th, just because of the day. However... They're moving it to Friday, May 27th, but they're going to give us the first two episodes instead of the, instead of the single. So awesome. Um, that's the, so a little bit of sad, but a lot of good because we're getting two episodes at once for a premiere. So if, if you want to have some sort of Star Wars connection with that release date, I mean, you could look at, it's May 27th, May is the fifth month, and then 2-7, <laughs> if you add 2 to the 5, you get 7-7, seven, seven, which is the 1977 is the year that A New Hope came out, so there you go. <laughs> and we just did math. Okay. Um, 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a real deep stretch, but hey, why not? <laughs> um, it was on purpose the entire time. Okay. Um, E3 is canceled. So, womp, womp. that's crazy, actually. Yeah. I, I E3, the entertainment, entertainment, the electronic entertainment expo, which is basically <laughs> the big video game convention of the year, has been canceled. Um, the ESA saying the following, we will devote all our energy and resources into delivering a revitalized physical and digital E3 experience next summer. Whether enjoyed from the show floor or your favorite devices, the 2023 showcase will bring the community, media, and industry back together in an all-new format and interactive experience. I thought this was COVID-related. I thought this was some other kind of uh, what's going on. They might just be trying to refigure out the format for E3. <laughs> Um, the cool thing yeah. about this is we're probably still going to get like a Microsoft press conference. Hey, here's our games. You might get a Sony press conference. Here's our games, vice versa with the Nintendo. They might still do those things, but the big main E3 conference is canceled for the year. So. <laughs> um, I'm really excited to, to experience E3 and the metaverse next year. Uh, no, just kidding. But I, I can see that they want to, adjust to these weird remote um, internet times that we live in. But I kind of, to me, it is crazy to cancel the convention for a full year. Like that just seems insane. And I hope that all the, uh, I hope that all the gaming companies do release their own presentations because I mean, it's just really cool to have all that gaming news come out of one weekend at a time. Like it's just a really fun thing to follow when E3 happens. So. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, uh, let's talk about Marilyn Monroe. Um, Marilyn Monroe <laughs> is getting a biopic um, on Netflix later okay. this year. Uh, it'll be on Netflix and in theaters at some point this year. They haven't given a release date for it. Um, Bond Girl, Ana de Armas, um, is okay. going to be playing Marilyn Monroe in the biopic. The reason this is getting um, news in terms of us, like, first off, I really... Ana de Armas is a phenomenal actress. Um, the uh, the fact that she's playing Marilyn is awesome. I always thought the Marilyn story was um, fascinating, and I've seen several other like biopics, like Norma Jean and Marilyn, and you know stuff like that. Um, so I was really curious to see where this is going. This movie, however, is going to be rated NC seventeen, which is a first for Netflix and any streaming service to have an NC-17 rated movie Wow! Um, for sexual reasons. Um, she does have her Playboy shoot. Uh, Marilyn Monroe did do a Playboy shoot and stuff, so I don't entirely know what's all in the movie, obviously, but um, it's getting an NC-17 rating, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, because that's a first for a streaming service. So, Yeah, that's really crazy. I think um, Ana de Armas is not necessarily the first person you would think of to play Marilyn Monroe, but until you see the until you see what she looks like in full costume, and that's what I think I'm going to look that up shortly. But I think uh, everything I've seen her in, she's been phenomenal, so I'm willing to give her a chance. And um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think Marilyn Monroe is somebody who like her. Her career in Hollywood and uh, as far as, like, you mentioned, the Playboy modeling and as, as well as, like, her relation or, you know, her relations with uh, John F. Kennedy and stuff. There's a lot of really interesting, like, nuances and uh, different eras and aspects to cover. And the fact that this is getting an NC-17 rating, I feel like this is going to give us 
a lot of the dirty details of her story and might be just a super interesting movie, you know? Yeah. Uh, what were you going to say? Well, that, that I was literally going to say all of that because I was going to bring up the yeah. Kennedy thing. I was going to bring up the Kennedy affair. So, yes, very curious to see this movie. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Uh, you know, well, I'll be right there to watch it. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> um, Disney. I don't have a lot to say on this, but this really bums me out. Um, Disney took all the Netflix Marvel shows, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, The Defenders, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Punisher, and put them on a Disney Plus, uncensored, unedited. Right. And we had the whole big thing about R-rated content. And then Disney removed violent imagery from The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Really? Yep. There's a scene where uh, Bucky throws, like, a metal rod at a guy, and it hits him in the face, and, like, there's blood and stuff. They removed the blood completely, and uh, the metal rod hits him, but it bounces off the guy and knocks him down. So they took the blood out completely. And then I think the part where um, uh, U.S. agent uh, beats the guy with the Captain America shield, they removed the blood from that scene, too. This is what I'm going to say. This is the wrong direction. I understand Disney Plus has to be a family-friendly thing, but if you're going to give us rated our content and have us do a whole big content overhaul with our passwords and our um, accounts and uh, all that stuff, and and then you're going to remove violent content, (laughs) that's a step in the wrong direction. And I personally, I'm not a big fan of censorship. Like, I censor the language on this show specifically because I don't want to put an explicit tag every time I post an episode, (laughs) to be completely honest. Like, you and I try and keep our language to a minimum because I don't want to have to put an explicit tag on every single episode that we use the F word. So that's why we do it. But ultimately, and that's maybe that's laziness. I don't know. I just don't want to mark it explicit because I'd rather have more people listen, you know? No, I think uh-huh. I think it's our goal with the show is we're not trying to make a show that's talking about like a bunch of dirty, raunchy stuff. You know, we're just talking about nerdy pop culture stuff we love. So we're not going to be swearing left and right. But I don't know. This Disney story is very bizarre. I feel it, like Disney is a. It's, it, they seem so fickle about how they want to present themselves. And I feel like it's like they want to be publicly perceived as family friendly, but they'll also do stuff like put the Marvel Netflix shows on Disney plus because they know that accounts for like a lot of revenue they're going to be getting. And they try to like balance that fine line. And it's kind of, it's kind of just annoying, you know, I wish they would just pick one thing or the other. Well, reportedly Disney's going to restore the original scenes after these censored ones were uploaded by accident. I don't know how the young ones get uploaded by accident because that show's been on there for a while. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't really know. I just, that's in my opinion, that's a step in the wrong direction. So just fix it, Disney, and let's just keep things going the way they were. Um, however, I do think it could be Bob Chapek's fault because he's current CEO and, uh, apparently there's a rumor <laughs> that he's being looked at to be forced, forcefully, forcefully removed. So <laughs> right I don't really I was know. just, um, I don't, I don't have any I don't have any specifics, but I'm just laughing because I was just watching a YouTube video the other day about how 
Bob Chapix be- becoming like this weird scapegoat right now, where even like certain decisions that Bob Iger made, Bob Chapix being blamed for right now, just because he's right. like the man at the helm. And I just think it's kind of, that just you bringing him up made right. me crack up a little bit. But okay, let's talk about this. We have two more stories. Let's talk about the sad one real quick. Bruce Willis is stepping away from acting. Did you see this? So I haven't looked into it a lot. I've seen a lot of people talking about Bruce Willis, but I don't know a lot of the details of this one. Bruce Willis has been diagnosed with a condition called asphagia. Um, It's a language disorder caused by brain damage that impacts the ability to communicate. I read into this. Not only does it impact the ability to communicate verbally, but you can't recognize words on any level. Wow. Okay. You can't communicate with him. Like you can't talk to him because he won't be able to understand the words you're saying. He Mm -hmm. can't speak the words. He can't read or write the words. Mm -hmm. Um, And apparently they've been hiding this for a really, really long time. Like they've been hiding it for years. Um, This is really sad. It really bums me out. Um, Bruce Willis um, he hasn't made all the greatest movies in the world, but I think he's one of the best action stars out there. And Absolutely. I'm, really, I'm really sad to see this happen. You know what I mean? Um, I've always enjoyed him in movies. Uh, Die Hard's one of my favorite movies, period. Um, you know, just The Last Boy Scout. God, I love that movie. If you've never seen The Last Boy Scout, man, you've got to see that. God, Bruce Willis is phenomenal in that. But uh, on, like, Hudson Hawk and stuff like that, it's just, it really, yeah. just, it bums me out, you know? So, um it's really sad that that's happening. Uh, so Bruce Willis is stepping away, and um, that's kind of the end of it. I don't have a lot to say on it. It's just it's really sad. So yeah, it seems really sad and abrupt because I think you think of you think of Bruce Willis as this really spry action star, and I I don't even know how old he is, but I feel like it's a lot older than the number that I have in my head, and I feel like yeah. it's really disappointing. But um, as you were explaining, like he he has such a uh, awesome like prolific career we can revisit and obviously you know on this podcast we've really loved a lot of bruce willis films like you mentioned die hard and it's like how many times have we brought up the die hard series on our show yeah as well as um uh, another one you didn't mention that i know is like another show favorite is like the fifth element for example oh yeah yeah uh, uh his his work's gonna live on but it's definitely just it's so sad to hear so yeah yeah, it's it's hard Um, to know what to say but that's all right. The, uh, it, you know, you said um, we all have an idea of, you know, he's he's not as old as you thought he was in his head. Film and television makes these people um, immortal in the sense mm-hmm. that you have them in your head looking a specific way because you rewatch the movie over and over and you rewatch the show over and over again. And then you see them on an award show and you're like, wow, they're a lot older than I thought. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It's just because we see them in a certain light and we don't see them on the day to day. So yeah, that makes them a little bit immortal. It's just, it's just sad, but you know what? I'll be watching some Die Hard now because got to go check that. I got to go rewatch Die Hard just in the honor of Bruce Willis. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so. All right, one more news story. It's the weird one of the night. It's to get you laughing. I really don't have a lot to say about it, um, so strap in. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis will officiate her daughter's wedding in World of Warcraft cosplay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay, cool. 
I, I just, I honestly didn't know how to take that one. And I'm like, I'm throwing this in the news bank just for the sake of Peter's reaction. Um, <laughs> I just, I just think Jamie Lee Curtis, I don't know her like personality super well, but the movies she's been involved in, in her career have, it seems like she's made some really cool choices from going right. from, from like the Halloween, like sort of scream uh, queen sort of character, but then moving on into like other movies I really like, like, uh, trading places or, um, uh, what was the one I was just thinking of? Eraser and, or was it Eraser? Oh no, True Lies. That's True Lies. She wasn't an eraser. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was but, true. um, but no, I, I just think this is like more par for the course. And I, I think it's really cool and it shows that she has a sense of humor and it makes me think that her daughter is probably just really into World of Warcraft. And uh, yeah, that just sounds like a fun like, wedding. How do I, how do I make my, how do I make my kid happy? So if you're curious, she will be dressed as Jana Proudmore. Um, I don't play World of Warcraft, so I don't know who that is, but I could probably Google some images to kind of get an idea of the cosplay she's going to be in. So, <laughs> Right on. <laughs> but I feel like if Jamie Lee Curtis and a person of her stature and who has the money is probably going to go all out and it's going to be some pretty killer cosplay. So hopefully yeah. some pictures get released on the Internet for it. Either way. Um, all right, dude, are you ready to talk about tonight's list? Because we've gone yeah, way longer than I thought, but that was a ton of news. <laughs> So, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, man, let's talk about tonight's list. So let's roll the thing. And now for the top five. Okay, Peter, we're back. Um, yes. So this was your list. So... I had an interesting time putting this together, so why don't you explain what you were thinking, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> right. Well, I just thought it'd be fun to do a list based on, like, um, prose or no novels or however you want to phrase it, and I thought it'd be fun to talk about our top five uh, pieces of classic literature, which is basically what this list is, and uh, while looking this up, I saw that there's actually a difference between classic and classical literature, and it seems like... Class, it's one of those things where it seems like all classical literature is considered classic literature, but not vice versa. And, uh, I kind of like that putting the tag classic literature on something is a little bit more vague. And that's kind of the vibe that I got from it while kind of putting my list together is it's kind of, it's hard to define, but you know, you kind of know a classic liter piece of literature when you come across it. And, uh, you know, when it really comes down to it, I think a lot of the the stories and the characters we're going to be talking about tonight are these really sort of uh, tried and true archetypal characters that, you know, our society just can't ignore. And I think that's a really fun topic. I'm hoping that we touch on some stories that um, we've either talked about before or have uh, gone on to influence, you know, some of the cool like comic book or sci-fi stories and characters that we love. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's too much thought into it besides that. I just thought this list would be a, a little bit different and would be fun to talk about. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you kind of worded it that way because my, this is where I was having trouble is because where do you draw the line at classic? Right. What's the line <laughs> that considers a classic. Um, I know on the podcast, we talk a ton about movies, television, comics. Uh, between Peter and I, 
I read way more than Peter does. Um, I should probably, I should probably post a picture of my book wall sometime on uh, my Instagram or something <laughs> like that, uh, because I redid it and it's so organized and it's, it's amazing. Um, but I read a ton and I've read a ton of classics. Um, but I also run a, read a ton of like newer stuff and there's, and you know, what's funny is someone will be like, let's say, we're t- let's say Jurassic Park comes up in conversation and someone says, Oh dude, that movie's a classic. Well, I mean, it's not, but. I understand why you said that. Do you know what I mean? So where where do you draw a line at what the classic is? And to me, that's where I have my breakdown of the film eras. I have film up to 1975 because that's when Jaws happened. And then 1975 to Jurassic Park and then Jurassic Park to Currents, like three different eras of time for me. So anything pre-1975 in my head is a classic, even though I would count Jaws as a classic or Star Wars as a classic. But, because of the era in filmmaking, it breaks stuff down. There's not really an era in writing, in my opinion. The, the, the eras in writing, to me, are Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? And then you jump from <laughs> Egyptian hieroglyphics to actual written language, and you get, you know, Chaucer and Hemingway and, you know, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, Alexander Dumas, and you get these amazing, like, written works that, you know, and Hawthorne that, you know, move into your Michael Crichtons and Matthew Riley and Daniel Steele and um, uh, Neil Stevenson and Tom Clancy and Stephen King and Olivia Plath and like these great uh, authors. And then you roll into text messages and emoticons and emojis and realize we're back at Egyptian hieroglyphics. So it's, that's interesting. It's truly a de-evolution of our society. However, in the world of reading, um, I feel like there's not really like eras so much as it's all contextual language. When I write a book and I want to have airplanes attacking an aircraft carrier and big explosions and people dying and stuff, it costs me zero dollars to write those words on a page. Right. So I can write without a budget. But when I make a movie, I have a finite amount of money to make that vision a reality. So you have to write within a budget. So writing takes different forms. Um, like I said, I've read a lot of classics. So when I was putting this list together, I tried focusing primarily on classic lit um, and stuff that I've enjoyed over the years as opposed to, like, what I would probably cons- discern as a modern classic, if you will. Um, and the, where you define modern classic, I'm not 100% sure. But we'll see how this plays. I do have... <laughs> I do have two uh, honorable mentions, and then I think we can go from there. But that was just my um, thoughts when I was putting this list together. So, yeah, um, I have uh, two honorable mentions as well. Um, you said a couple things that I want to touch on. First of all, sure. the idea that emojis and whatnot are breaking us down to like a previous era of writing, where it's bringing <laughs> us back to the hier- hieroglyphic area era. If you think about social media, and especially uh, Facebook more than the other ones. When you go to somebody's Facebook profile, what do they call the area where everybody, you know, makes their posts and comments and stuff? The wall. That's your wall, yeah. And that's your really interesting when you think about hieroglyphics, you know. That's a really yeah. kind of weirding me out to think about that. But It's, um, it's your cave yeah. It's It's idiocracy all on our – right there. <laughs> anyway. Absolutely. Um, We're here to solve well, the other thing problems, I was, people. I just didn't – you didn't know that. <laughs> 
Um, the other thing I did want to comment on too is like, I do feel like Drew, I think you are more well read than me as far as like just novels go and stuff. I'm like one of those people who it's, it's kind of weird because I feel like I'm constantly reading, but the majority of the time I'm reading like some random article about whatever, but I don't have like, I'm not the most well read when it comes to, uh, just like fictional novels and stories and stuff, but there are some like, classic literature um tales and novels and stuff that i really do love so uh you know i i guess uh i just wanted to comment on that really quick but yeah we can jump into your honorable mentions if you're ready okay so my first honorable mention is a book i've talked about in the past um it's one i love i think it's become like my my honorable mentions in my opinion are modern classics okay they're not i don't pull them in i don't pull them in the category of um, classic literature, but I would put them in a modern category list classic if someone said pick some books to be considered modern classics. Um, right. I've talked about this book in the past. Um, it's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. But in terms of reading um, the book, sorry, let me not bury it. The book is In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. This is the book that the, mo- the Christmas story was based on. Um, okay, right. This book is written like classic literature. And when you read the book, you'll understand what I mean. It's the way the author talks. It's the way he describes things. It's the way, yeah. like, it's the, it's the old school way of thinking in terms of storytelling. And it's an amazing book to read. Um, but it's not, I would, that's why, that's why I make an honorable mention. It didn't feel like classic lit so much as modern classic to me. You know what I mean? So. I- I can see this. I've never read this, but knowing like the writing of the of a Christmas story and the amount of like I don't know, the amount of weight that's put on the like plights of this like grade school kid, it is like I can see that sort of like classic like it almost feels like you're reading Charles Dickens and or something like that, but it's a completely different era and a completely different level of yeah. um conflicts and stuff like that. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, do you have one? Do you have two? Did you say you had two? Yeah. Yeah. I have two as well. Uh, my first one is the complete opposite end of the spectrum though, because that's I actually okay. went with, um, <laughs> I actually went with the Canterbury tales by Jeffrey Chaucer. Um, this is one of those things where I feel like a decent amount of my picks are things that I've, uh, read. I had a couple, like, I had a British literature class in high school that I really loved, and I, I actually went on to take a couple more Brit lit classes in college. Um, and uh, this is the Canterbury Tales is something that I've just always thought was really fun. I always liked the uh, the aspect of reading something in Old English, which is essentially like it's kind of like reading a completely different language that I've grown up and known, but it's one of those things that once you've read a page or two, you're just in the zone and you can understand everything that's going on. Um, I remember in high school reading like uh, the Knight's Tale and I believe a couple other ones, like maybe the Cleric's Tale, if if I'm remembering correctly, but I remember I took a class in college and we read the Wife of Bath's Tale, and that was just awesome because I didn't realize how raunchy and ridiculous the Canterbury Tales could get. <laughs> but, like, The Wife of Bath is a super dirty tale, and it's one of those things where once you get used to reading Old English, you start to get the jokes, and it just gets hilarious as you go through it. So, Sure. 
Yeah. Yeah, I haven't read Canterbury Tales in a long time, so I totally understand what you're saying. <laughs> right on. <laughs> um, all right, so my next honorable mention is, this is the true, this is very, this is much more modern, um, and that's Jurassic Park. Um, okay, right on. The reason I say this is because I feel like Michael Crichton is old, was, at the time he wrote this, he was old enough to be influenced by legitimate classic adventure stories. And eventually he gets to the point where he writes Jurassic Park. But Jurassic Park, as a movie, influenced directors and filmmakers in the same way I feel like Jurassic Park, the novel, has influenced newer authors in terms of writing style and intrigue and, in a way, like, it's become a classic because of its influence on the future of what writing has become and stories that people want to tell. And they're just like, oh, my gosh, you can write a book about this? That's how you put that together in format, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that's why I wanted to bring it up. I mean, it's a phenomenal book, but in terms of a classic novel, I feel like it becomes a classic because of its influence elsewhere, if that makes sense. Right on, right so, on. Yeah, I don't have much more to say about it because we'll talk about Jurassic Park again at some point, obviously, but <laughs> um, that's that's why it's an honorable mention. It's just it's more modern than anything else. So anyway, go ahead. Um, yeah, so my next honorable mention is uh, The Three Musketeers, actually. And uh, this one, it's an honorable mention because it's a story that I've grown up and loved, and I've loved so many different adaptations. Um, and I remember a while back, I actually sat down and tried to read it, and I just didn't get super into it. Like, So I've only partially <laughs> read this book, and that's why it's an honorable mention. And it's something I think it was like when I tried to read it, maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset and I need to revisit it. But it's definitely a story that I've always loved. And um, and I think just like it's really it's one of those things. The story has like affected my life in so many ways and I just had to make my list. But uh, yeah, just since I haven't finished the actual book, I didn't feel <laughs> I didn't feel OK putting it on my final list. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. I hear you. Um, all right. So that's my first pick of the night. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me, I didn't mean to cough there. Um, all right, so my first pick of the night is The Count of Monte Cristo. Have you ever read this? Yeah, it. I read this at a very young age, so it's been a really long time. But yeah, uh, this is this uh, is a great story. This is a wonderful story of revenge about a guy who he's in love with a girl, and his best friend kind of stabs him in the back and gets him imprisoned, and then marries the girl, and they start a family and all that stuff. And then the first guy breaks out of prison and becomes this like, and no one's seen him in like 20 some years. So no one believes he's still alive. And he kind of like rebuilds himself into this like completely different person and then kind of swoops in from behind. It's, it's very much like a, in a way it's almost like the original Batman story <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> where he kind of becomes this thing and then tries to, it's, it's a, it's a tale of revenge and vengeance and seeking justice for being wronged and stuff like that. It's, it's a really, really cool story uh, written by Alexander Dumas, uh, who wrote Three Musketeers. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the movie, there is a movie with, um, Guy Pierce and Jim Caviezel. Uh, Jim Caviezel. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Guy. It is probably one of the best versions of Count of Monte Cristo in film form. Um, if you don't want to read the novel, I, I totally understand. Um, if you just want to watch the book, but the sword fight at the end, it, whether you're into it or not, the sword fight at the end is definitely worth the price of admission. <laughs> but uh, the movie is really, really cool. So um, definitely read it if you can, but I totally get it. So, but yeah. 
Anyway. Yeah, the, this is a good pick. I, as far as the story, I don't have too much to say about it that you didn't. Um, I do remember it being really enthralling um, back in the day reading it, especially um, some of the parts, the the prison scenes actually seemed really interesting. I remember um, the main character talking to, like, this old man in the cell next to him, and I thought it was like a – it really took me to that place, which was something that, you know, as a little kid, I'd never experienced anything like that. I guess I really haven't experienced anything like that to this day, which is probably good, a good thing, too. But you know what I mean? It was really engrossing yeah. at the time. Um, but also, like, I do like that this one does get into those sort of like this is, I think, an archetypal story that I know there's like that semi-recent uh, Jim Caviezel movie. But I feel like this has been. Uh, approached as a movie adaptation a few times, and I wouldn't be surprised if we get some more versions of it in the future. So definitely a great pick. Yeah, awesome. All right, so what's your first one of the night? Yeah, so my first one, um, this one I feel kind of goofy, even though I think it's totally legit, but I actually went with A Christmas Carol by Charles, Charles Dickens. And this is, the reason I picked this one is because this is something that I've read and enjoyed and enjoyed like, I feel like it's almost at the point of countless adaptations of this story throughout my life. It's one of the few, yes, it's a Christmas story, but I think because of that, it's one of the few sort of like classical stories that I uh, consume in at least one form, like every single year. You know, a lot of people sit down every single year and uh, they'll read through Lord of the Rings or something, for example. But yeah, Christmas Carol, like by default, like it had to make my list because it's such, it's just such a thing that's always been there in my life. And it's kind of, you don't even realize it. But I'm, and then the other aspect is like, I do really like this story. I think it's a really, um, it's, just such an endearing story. And I love that it blends the sort of, um, you know, old timey English atmosphere with like the cool supernatural, uh, ghost story aspect of it. And I don't know, I, I like a Christmas story quite a bit. So had to make the list. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, did you ever read, um, lost by Gregory Maguire? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. So Gregory yeah, Maguire, no. <laughs> I don't want to say he writes fractured fairy tales, but he wrote the book Wicked, which, oh, okay. which by the way, is nothing like the musical. The musical said, oh, that's a cool story, and then went and made the show Wicked, and it's completely different from the book. But the book is a very dark story about what happened, and like it's some of that made it into the musical, but the musical is basically something. Anyway, he wrote Wicked. He also wrote one called Mirror Mirror, which is like a Snow White version. Right. Lost is Christmas Carol, and it looks at it oh, from cool. a different perspective. It's awesome. The book is phenomenal. Um, so uh, yeah, check it out if you're interested. Check it out if you're interested. Yeah, it's really, really yeah. cool. Who would you say the author was? Uh, Gregory Maguire. Okay, cool. Yeah, he wrote, like I said, he wrote Mirror Mirror, Lost, uh, Wicked. Um, he wrote like a handful of them, and they're all like, um, different takes on these stories that we all know and love. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway, um, so my next one for the night? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So my next pick for the night is uh, a book by T.H. White. It is The Once and Future King. Do you know what this book is? I've heard of it, but, yeah, I'm not necessarily super familiar. Most people 
um, hear of it because they watch the X-Men movies and they see Ian McGowan's uh, Magneto reading it in prison and goes, what is that book about? Um, <laughs> and Because I, I, I remember working, I worked at Borders back when that was a thing, and people kept coming in to, like, what's the book Magneto is reading? Um, the book is The Once and Future King, and this is the book about King Arthur, is the best way of wording it. Um, it begins with the sword and the stone, and then it moves to the queen of the air and darkness, and the ill-made knight, and eventually the candle and the wind, but it is the true story of King Arthur. Um, that's awesome. Based on the, you know, based on the high fantasy that is King Arthur and Merlin, and, uh, Morgan Le Fay, and, um, all that stuff, so... Um, it's a it's an awesome awesome book if you want to like know about Arthurian mythology, uh, definitely read this book. So, so this is interesting because this actually goes into my next pick because I actually went with um, kind of more generic, just the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and I worded it that way because I haven't necessarily read this adaptation specifically, the Once and Future King, but I've read a lot of different versions of uh, King Arthur and like the different tales that surround him. But King Arthur, I felt like was such a, is a little bit of an anomaly because the stories of him kind of started as um, like, uh, kind of like oral tradition, if you will, where it was like these oral tales that were passed down yeah. from, you know, centuries, you know, century to century, tribe to tribe. And, uh, I didn't, yeah, I don't think I've read this specific one, but, um, I just thought it was, uh, it was definitely an interesting thing to pick. And, uh, when it goes into King Arthur, like, just enjoying the stories of King Arthur, like my whole life, whether it be like being from a book I've read or like different adaptations, like, King Arthur and uh, his whole world really have always captivated my imagination, Um, especially when you get into there's all the magic aspects. There's Merlin and stuff like that. And I kind of like looking at it with the the fact that it did come out of an oral tradition. I think it's interesting to look at how King Arthur, um, when it comes to like a lot of his stories, like um, the aspect of the Holy Grail wasn't necessarily added to his story until after Christianity kind of reigned supreme in, uh, you know, in England or however you want to phrase it. Like there was actually a bunch of King Arthur stories that were completely unrelated to like the Holy Grail and stuff before that. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I don't want to ramble on too much about no, King Arthur, right. but we kind of matched in a weird way, even though it wasn't okay. like the specific same book, if that makes sense. What's the book? <laughs> Well, that's what I was just going like in general, King Arthur. Oh, just like, King Arthur like in I've, general sense. Yeah, exactly. Because I've read like different versions of it, um, and I remember well, like reading, um, like I like I remember reading like J.R.R. Tolkien had like a an adaptation of like the Tale of the Green Knight, and I've read uh, a lot of different versions as a kid and stuff like that, but. The Once and Future King, I haven't read the specific version, if that makes sense. Yeah. Or The Once and Future King, so. Uh, yeah, so definitely, it's, since you're into King Arthur and Arthurian mythology, Once and right. Future you check it out. Um, that's probably an audio if you don't have time to read, read. Um, so my next pick, I guess, um, is Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. 
Um, okay. The real Alice in Wonderland, not the Disney version, not the dumbed-down kid <laughs> version, the actual one, which includes Through the Looking Glass, the Red Queen, the Jabberwocky, all the stuff that got cut out of the Disney, uh, the um, not the li- not necessarily the live-action Disney films, but the uh, animated Disney film. Um, the live-action ones, I don't know how I feel about the live-action Disney movies uh, because they this book really captured my imagination and the dark stuff that goes well beyond just dealing with the queen of hearts and stuff like that. And then you get to the red queen and that intricate chess game that's played throughout the book. That's metaphorical more than it is a legitimate chess game. Um, but you deal like when you get beyond Alice in Wonderland and you're in through the looking glass, such an amazing book, like Lewis Carroll, like where he came up with this stuff, we could all take a couple guesses, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> But the book's phenomenal. I don't know if this is, I don't know if we matched on this, but this is one of my absolute favorites. Um, so, yeah. No, this is, um, we didn't match, but uh, I had a feeling this was going to come up. I think um, I really do love uh, this story and book, and uh, especially a lot of the, I don't know who was behind a lot of the um, illustrations from, um, a lot of the versions of Alice in Wonderland that go around have a lot of these really cool, like old school black and white pen and ink illustrations that I've always really loved. Copy but, of Chris um, Carroll's book I have has those pen and ink mm-hmm. black and white illustrations that I love them. They're so cool. Ab- absolutely. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know too much else what to say besides what you have, but I do really love the Jabberwocky. Like, I think that's one of my favorite poems that's ever been written. And it's one of those things that I heard as a kid and I thought it was awesome. And then I got older and I'm like, man, it's crazy that most of the words in this poem are completely made up. (laughs) But that's also really cool at the same time. So that one's always captured my imagination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So what do you got then? Okay, so for my next pick, I actually went with Dracula by uh, Bram um, Stoker. Um, did we match for this one? No, I just figured it was going to come up. Yeah, I uh, this was one I thought we might match with, but this is um, this is just a great story. Like I feel like everybody kind of knows it to a certain extent, but um, I think it is a really cool story because it does introduce us to uh, Dracula and kind of the. Um, I can't remember the three women, like his harem that he has going on. And uh, also like the character of Van Helsing. And there's just so much cool lore and sort of like really archetypal moments uh, in this book. Uh, This is one of the books that I actually read in a uh, college British literature class. And uh, it was really fun to read Dracula and then go into class and analyze it. And it was one of those things like, man, it's just fun to read a story that I, I enjoy so much and then analyzing it. And there's a lot of aspects to um, the way Bram Stoker wrote this book um, where, you know, this book came out like during the Victorian times where it was kind of taboo to talk about certain subjects. So there's a lot of weird like sexual undertones and stuff hidden within the book of Dracula that you don't necessarily realize, but it was kind of like, the author's way of getting away with talking about certain things. And that was kind of cool to explore as well. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this one, Drew, but I mean, this is a classic pick. I feel like you can't go wrong, <laughs> wrong with this. It one, is. You know? uh, the only thing that doesn't, that Dracula doesn't have is Trevor Belmont. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. 
um, yeah, I just the uh, the bat. I feel like um, the way the Dracula mythos has evolved from just the way that, with Van Helsing and stuff like that, and the way it's evolved has made me want more out of that single story because we have like things like Castlevania or when you just yeah. Van Helsing story being a monster hunter in general, not just a Dracula vampire. Story yeah. Stuff. You know, that's, that's why I say that. Um, no, but, but that's a good thing to point out because I do like that. This is a story that has lived on and we've talked about Dracula enough times on this podcast that it's just kind of cool that it goes back to this story from, I don't know if it was the, 17th or 18th century or when it came out but yeah um really good stuff um oh the other thing that that made me that that reminded me of as well though is when you read dracula like his actual like count dracula's description in the book is actually so different than most depictions of him you know in like movies or cartoons or whatever because yeah i don't know there's just really weird aspects like i think they mentioned him having long teeth and, but I think he had like weird disheveled facial hair. And I don't know. It's one of those things where they describe this really gruesome looking man, but it doesn't necessarily sound like the classic sort of like clean shaven widow peaked sort of vampire that you're used to nowadays, if that makes sense. So yeah, no, it does. Um, I see what you're saying. All right. So my next pick of the night is three musketeers. Awesome. Um, by Alexander Dumas. Um, unlike you, I have read the book. <laughs> right on. <laughs> um, this book is much longer than the movie, and we've expressed our uh, love for the film. Um, where the book, the, the film is such a small portion of what that book is. Um, that's really a con- the film really is a condensed version of that book because it that book goes in many different directions. There's a lot more going on than just um, the, the prevent of a war breaking out and just simply protecting the king. And you're, you're learning a lot more about D'Artagnan and the, and the musketeers themselves and him trying to become a musketeer and so on. And he, uh, he is way more arrogant in the book than he is in the movie. <laughs> um, I almost don't like D'Artagnan in the book in, like, in the, when you compare the two. <laughs> um, but the adventure, but the adventure is what it is. And, you know, like, that's me. Like, I just have this thing for swordplay and swashbuckling yeah. adventure and stuff. I mean, look at my list so far. Alice in Wonderland aside, County Monte Cristo, Once the Future King, Three Musketeers, all swordplay. Um, it's all adventure, swordplay nonsense. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I fell in love with the movie, which made me read the book. I love this book. It's probably if I had to, if someone said you could only grab classics off your shelf and, you know, try and, you know, for the, for the apocalypse, I guarantee I'd be grabbing three musketeers. Um, nice. But yeah, that's actually an interesting list. Like your apocalypse book list. That's a, uh, well, I'm just, I'm just saying, tackle I, was just saying I was told I had to cat, um, <laughs> a, a classics only anyway. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, um, so yeah, go ahead, man. Yeah. So, uh, moving into my next pick, um, I actually went with, uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, by Robert Louis Stevenson. And, uh, this is a really fun book to talk about. Um, and I love talking about it in relation to, um, uh, the league of extraordinary gentlemen as well. <laughs> no, but, but like there, there's some like serious aspects I did want to talk. I know you, 
he laughed, but it is like, there's some really cool things that that story did. But, um, I, one of the cool things about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is, uh, when you read the book, um, they describe Mr. Hyde when, uh, you know, after the first transformation, Mr. Hyde is like a normal sized person. Like he's the same size as, size as Dr. Jekyll. But then towards the end of the book, he's being described as this juggernaut going down the street and being able to like trample over people and stuff. And there's this cool concept of as Dr. Jekyll gives into the side of Mr. Hyde and gives more into the sort of like sinful and like violent nature of that character, the character like physically is actually growing bigger and stuff like that. And that's why I think it's pretty awesome when you read uh, the league of extraordinary gentlemen, when you actually get to the reveal of Mr. Hyde and he's like this, like Hulk size, just like monster, you know, and it's kind of cool that uh, Alan Moore had that in mind. Like, you know, if this story continued, like Mr. Hyde would be like, way larger than he actually is in this book. But um, this was another one that uh, I actually read in the same class as that uh, Dracula book. And this was another one where it was just really cool to read the story and then go into class every, every day and, or, you know, every other day and just talk about, you know, cool stories. Cause <laughs> most of my life in literature classes, we talked about really boring stories, but like Dracula and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that's like pretty badass. So Drew, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this one, but I, one, one other thing I'd say is like, this is obviously like a really archetypal, like really tried and true classic that we're going to keep revisiting through the years. I think it's so. gonna, we're going to keep revisiting because of the influence that goes beyond it, you know, um, right on. Yeah. The, uh, you know, when you, cause you brought up League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and just the, having the character in that story. And then you look at how that translates to, you know, they had to have had, the, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had to be heavy influence on the creation of the Hulk. You know, this is that, yeah. this is the influence of storytelling from the classic arts all the way up to present day, modern, you know, where the the Hulk at this point probably could be considered a modern classic as long as you're willing to account for comic books as actual literature. Um, so. <laughs> we would never do such a thing on this well, no, show. No, I count, I count comic books yeah. as actual literature, but I know there's people out there in groups out there that do not, and they're mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> and you could right say, on. no, that's an opinion, where I would say, Opinions are like the opera. You could listen to them, but why would you? You know, um, <laughs> the, <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. That's all, that's, that's all joking conjecture. But no, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's just interesting to see the influence as to where that classic story came to today. Um, yeah. Or how definitely a good thing today. to point out. Yeah. Anyway, last pick of the night for both of us, yeah. it looks like. So the last pick of the night for me is a book called Treasure Island. Um, right, right. Did we match on this the way you said right? No, I just I just knew you were going to pick this one up, pick this one, but uh definitely a great classic story. This you know? book has influenced me on many levels, not just the idea of, you know, the swashbuckling sword adventure type stuff, but um it influences me on my writing, it influences me on things I read. I actually read Treasure Island once a year. Um I put it in the rotation. This is one I've read thousands and thousands on countless amount of times. Um, this is the book that got me into reading, you know, when your parents want you to read books and you're like, no, I'm not going to read. I'm not going to read. And you start arguing and that kind of stuff. And, you know, like <laughs> as, as a kid, why would you want to sit and read a book? Well, eventually you start reading and it just 
carries you. And like, I, it was a book I did not want to put down and I kept going, I kept going. And then I got to the end of the book and I was like, that was great. And I read it again and I get to the end of the book and I read it again. This is a book that I actually own multiple copies of, um, on my shelf. I think I have one, two, three, I think six different versions of it. And when I say versions, it's not like I have one that's like a, abridged version for kids. I think that's the one, the copy that I originally read. And then mm-hmm. I have the other ones are all the same version of the book, just like different printings that were gifts to me over the years or I picked up. I actually got a, I actually got a really, really old hardcover print of it from a used bookstore that was like in really decent shape. I don't remember the copyright date on it, but I was like, no, 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 this has to be in my collection. Um, but no, I, I love Treasure Island. Um, if you don't want to read the book, there is a the, the best, in my opinion, the best movie version of Treasure Island is the one that has uh, Charlton Heston and Christian Bale. Um, it's it's a phenomenal film version of the book. Very very uh, true adaptation of the source material. Um, mm-hmm. And then, if you really want a fun deep dive, um, the show on Stars called Black Sails. Um, it's four seasons. It's basically Game of Thrones with pirates, but it is all the events leading up to the opening of the book Treasure Island. Um, Interesting. So I never knew all, that. So it puts all so all the characters are players that you will some of them the ones that survive are players that are important to the book Treasure Island. And then, so as you introduce people, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, that's that guy, you know. And it leads all the way up to the opening of the book. So. That's pretty awesome. Is uh, Black Sails based on any, like, previous, like, novel or anything? Or is it I just its own so. thing? I think it's, I think yeah. it's their own thing. Because in Treasure Island, you have Captain Flint and his crew running around building this treasure, and they bury it on an island. Um, and the question, and the book, and Treasure Island deals with the pirates going back to get the treasure mm-hmm. or the hunt for that treasure. And um, the television show is all about Flint and his crew and Long John Silver gathering this treasure and dealing with the pirate politics and everything. Oh, that makes sense. World of pirates up to the point of them burying the treasure. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Nice. And yeah, I, I never knew. And then putting the treasure map together, which eventually leads to the, yeah. Yeah. I never knew that about that show, but that's, uh, that's actually pretty cool. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I think this one's a great pick. I just I don't know if I could say anything that you <laughs> had in at this point, but sure, uh, um, I can move into my last pick if uh, if you yeah, want. Um, I actually went with, um, and I actually mentioned this with King Arthur, um, the idea of like oral, um, you know, orally telling a story like many times over the ages, and my last pick fits in with that because I actually went with uh, Beowulf and. Uh, this is another book that, or story, I guess, uh, that I was exposed to, um, in school. And, uh, it's one of those things where it just felt so epic. And the idea of like a story being passed down, um, by oral tradition like that really, really captured my imagination. I was like, wow, like it's pretty cool that they, you know, you know, over the ages, different storytellers would memorize the story and retell it until it was eventually written. And uh, I just thought that felt really epic. And it was one of those things when I finally was able to read Beowulf, you know, when I was finally exposed to it, it was one of those things where I was like, why didn't anybody tell me about this before? <laughs> like I was like, why wasn't, you know, this feels so epic and so cool. And I don't know why, 
I was never exposed to the story, um, which I think is like a whole different thing to unpack. But no, this is just a really classic uh, tale of like, if you want to talk about slaying dragons or fighting monsters or just doing really cool Viking stuff and hanging out in mead halls and stuff. And like this story really has it all. Um, And it's just one of those, it's an age old story. Um, There's been a couple different film iterations of it. There's the one like CG version that was kind of weird, but um, I kind of feel like we might be due for another, just like really good Beowulf adaptation. But uh, uh, Drew, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this one at all. Um. I've never been the biggest fan of Beowulf. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I always liked mythology and like, like I said, the hack and slash adventure, sword play, that kind of stuff totally is right up my alley. This was one of those books I kind of scoffed at a little bit because it was one of those required readings in school. And I always, <laughs> and I hate to say that, but I always wanted to read stuff that they didn't want me to read because I always felt like I was being spoon fed baby food when I wanted steak. You know, so that <laughs> interesting. So that's see, that's yeah. Anyway, for for me, this was one where it was like I hated all my required reading, and then I was like, they finally gave me something cool when I had to read oh, Beowulf. Sure. You know, sure. so that's kind of how I approached it. But I understand what you're saying. Um, oh, I was talking about the adaptations of it. Another adaptation that I've heard about before is there's, like, in the mid-90s, I want to say, there was another, like, really bombastic version of Beowulf that I almost want to say was, like, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, who did, like, Mortal Kombat and Resident Evil. I might be wrong, but it definitely, like, had that style. And I've never seen it, but it just seems really bonkers and like something that would just be fun to watch and like maybe clown on with your friends and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So that kind of brings us to the end of the list. Um, yeah, pretty much. We went way longer than I thought we were going to, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) but Hey, we had a ton of stuff to cover. Um, so you want to know what we're going to do next week? Yeah. So normally, yeah, wait, 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 my, normally it's my pick, but we have to push my pick back a week because it's that time of year. The Oscars have happened. Time to talk about our favorite movies from 2021. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's kind of like what we do, unless you think you need a little bit more time. But I figured this was a perfect time um, because over the, I think we've watched the majority of the movies that we're going to watch from 2021, at least right now. So for the sake of, because uh, we can always go back and revisit a film or a list or something like that. So, but I think uh, we always do this as soon as the Oscars are done. It's time to roll into our favorites of the year. So, um, um absolutely. I'm, uh, I guess I'm as ready as I ever will be to tackle this list. It's kind of weird because every time, you know, our favorite. Uh, our favorite movies from the past year, every time that comes around, I always feel like I haven't watched enough of them, but I'm kind of interested to see, like, to go back and see what <laughs> what I've actually well, seen this year. I was year, thinking so. about it. Theaters opened up again, and I went to the theaters a lot. And on top of that, HBO Max dropped everything for me right there. And then on top of that, you had all the streaming movies on Netflix and Disney+. And, you know, like, there was a ton of stuff that released so I think I saw more of it than I thought I did. Definitely more than I saw in 2020. So, yeah, I was kind of thinking along the same lines as well. So, um, yeah, this will be interesting. <laughs> yeah, cool, man. 
Um, well, let's throw this episode in the can and, um, yeah. And this one for the evening. How about that? Um, do us all a favor, everybody. Um, check out our website, top5report.com. There you'll find links to all of our social media, Twitter and Facebook, along with a link to our email, top5report at gmail.com. Hit us up there, each social media, email, either way works. Uh, we're on Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Um, you can subscribe to, the, subscribe to us in those places. If you do, you will not miss a single episode. You can also leave us a review, which we love those five stars, but we understand criticism because it helps us get better and it makes the words we say feel important. You can follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram at Drew3927. Uh, Peter, what about you? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ninja Pierre, and that's where I'll be reiterating that I can't believe he deared to kill a king's dare. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a quote I haven't heard in a long time. Awesome. All right, everybody, for the Top 5 Report, I am Drew. I'm Peter. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.